confidence is the killer. And I, and I say that because confidence throws an anchor and limits the possibilities of seeing a scene that you know ad nauseum. It limits the possibility for anything beyond what you feel confident in. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In honor of the 74th Annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series of episodes devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees Theatrical Feature Film Symposium. The event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Theatrical Feature Film. This year's nominees include Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of Licorice Pizza, Kenneth Branagh, the director of Belfast, Jane Campion, the director of The Power of the Dog, Steven Spielberg, the director of West Side Story, and Denis Villeneuve, the director of Dune. These talented directors gathered on March 12th at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles for an in-depth discussion of their work with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part two of our Meet the Nominees special and listen to the five nominees conclude their discussion. I want to talk about rehearsal with all of you and how you use it, and particularly on this film, maybe it's a, if it's a different. Paul, what was rehearsal? You had two people who had never acted before, if I'm correct on that. Well, Lana's done a lot of the uh, videos, so I guess she'd done that, but certainly not, not, not him. Um, what did you do for rehearsal um, in terms of before shooting? Well, we, we did... We did I mean, it's not as extreme as drive my car, but I really that that kind of sequence in that when they're rehearsing the the Chekhov rang rang a little bit about that idea of reading a script um, without anything on it and just 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 reading it and making sure it's something that I really like doing. Not as extreme as that, you know, but I that rang some bells. But I think um, for them, it was just getting to know the dialogue. And getting to know not just the dialogue for one scene at a time, but knowing the entire script before we started shooting, um, like it, as if it was a play. And the idea there was that because they hadn't done it before, that the more the over-prepared would be better than trying to cram to learn a scene the night before. You know, that once the avalanche and speed of a movie shoot starts happening that they would probably be like, you know, trying to finish a paper on Sunday night before school, that they're, 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 that, that, that was a horrible place to be. So it was really about three months of them being together without me and practicing their lines and practicing their lines and doing whatever it was. And then we would go, we went once or twice to the real locations to just kind of give them a sense of the space, but to try to not overdo it. I mean, they, they, maybe they overdid it when they were together alone. They're just practicing their lines, practicing their lines. And, and they were, were very paranoid as well because they did not want to, um, they wanted to, they did not want to be the thing holding this up, you know. They, wa- they wanted to be great. They wanted to be great for, for me, for the crew, for everybody. They did not want to be the ones that we were waiting for. 
it was, it was <laughs> Talk great. about that, but this is an interesting idea that they worked together on the whole script as two actors together where you were not present for a lot of that. When did you get to see, quote, their work? Well, I mean, I, at the beginning, we, we all read it together and we would talk about it and it was more of, you know, are there any questions? And then I think you, for, more for uh, Cooper, um, that I would hear lines uh, that just couldn't come out of his mouth right. And it was not... And it was the right. It's, so the writing has to change to fit him. You know, you try long enough to see. It's a pretty good line. Is he going to get it? And you go, he's not going to get it. It just doesn't. It's not coming out of him. So write it. Write it. Write it better for him. For his mouth to come out of him. So just making those adaptions and getting those early enough um, that they could. You know, I had to trust them and put them together. Since some of the scenes are long, like don't have lots of cuts, even the very beginning scene, that long tracking shot with the two of them and where he introduced them, do you remember either rehearsing on set when they did that or beforehand, I'm using that as an example? Well, that's a perfect example of doing the movie once with Adam and Flo on a phone at the high school and breaking, it's very long, it's probably about 12 pages of dialogue and sort of mapping it out to realize we can do 12 pages of dialogue in three shots. Here's number one, and it'll go from here to here roughly, you know. So this is your zone to get all this dialogue in. And then here's section two. By the time we come around and we meet Sasha, that's zone two. And then zone three um, this, this is how it'll play out. So that had ru- been roughed in for them beforehand. And then shooting it, you know, that, the reality of that is, is um, I don't know, when you're shooting the first scene of a movie or the last scene of the movie, there becomes this unfortunate tenseness, you know, because everybody knows, like, this one's going to be in the movie, right? Because, you know, and um, I, I can remember... Um, being a really bad director that day, uh, and they must have smelled the fear um, <laughs> coming from me, where I had been nothing but the elder statesman, ex- giving confidence and, and everything else. And there's something about their, the look in my eye must have made them feel like there's something's different about today. He looks scared, and it doesn't feel good. And they were, they were terrible for, like, the whole morning. They were stiff, and it was... And it was this sort of great, great panic. It was, and it's a horrible situation to be in that you can't really fight your way out of except to realize that, well, we're here for two days and there's still one more morning. And if we can get something under our belt that feels good, then we can attack this again. Because then you start scrounging around to the actors. You're like, that's fine. You know what we've got tomorrow? And that's like, well, okay, so obviously this is shit. So you're just just like digging, you know, deeper and deeper. (laughs) You know. And tomorrow happened. Tomorrow happened, and it was great. But, you know, um, the thing about working with teenagers I think is important is to, um, usually if you can just start your day at about 3.30 when they're finally awake. (laughs) 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 <laughs> did, did you really start rescheduling? Oh, no, no. I, yeah, no, I did. We did. I think we did start to realize that any, you know, that, that he, you know, they're not really awake until the afternoon. So maybe we just try to push everything back a little bit. Great, great. Really? really? Okay. <laughs> Denis, what rehearsal process did you have on on Dune? The, uh, the what I need when I, when I work with new actors, I mean, the actors is uh, to build a, a relationship. To, they are all different. I will need to adjust myself to 
each of them to understand how to to bring the best out of them. So I, I what I do is that uh, I have long sessions in my office with them where we go through the lines and talk about characters. But the most important thing for me is, uh, uh, of course, as Paul said, to to adjust the dialogue because uh, what I write is not Shakespeare. No? I mean, as we 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 it's uh, it's the most important thing is that it comes uh, that it sounds natural. But uh, um, it's, it's uh, about understanding who I have in front of me. Yeah, it's really uh, to, to to build a relationship. Um, that's the most important thing. I don't do rears in general. In terms of, for example, working with Timothy um, on this one-on-one, do you remember how you, the two of you found this character? How yeah, Paul the, the idea is that, that all the intellectual process needs to happen in prep for me. Well, once we are on set, on set it's too late for questions or it's, a, it's too late. I mean, it's, it's a very, on set it's very visceral. And, and so I'm trying to dig all the, the, the questions and then to, to, to answer to everything. And, and, and Timothy is, is, a, is a, a brilliant mind and, and he had tons and tons of questions about what I could see. And it's, it's, it's again, it's all a long discussion with him and to establish a relationship. So, and in terms of his creating this character, were you in an improvisational stage as, as you were working with him before you started shooting in these one-on-ones? I'm, I'm uh, I, I go through the lines with each of them, but uh, there's no, uh, I don't, uh, sometimes I'm wondering if it's because I'm lazy or because I like to keep that kind of period of strong spontaneity in front of the camera, specifically with great actors. I don't think, I don't, I, I don't feel the need to rehearse, honestly, but I need the, 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 the need to hear the dialogues in their mouth, to adjust it, and, and uh, to try to understand who is in front of me again. I'm repeating the same thing since the, you asked me the question, but that, that's the only thing I, interesting I can say. But I'm interested in, as uh, is Rebecca Ferguson who plays his mom, um, because of the powers that these characters have, which are not necessarily our human powers yet, maybe we'll get them, but not yet. How did you talk about the business of the voice or the business of, of, of having visions? What was the discussion so that they owned it? The truth, the, the idea here is that for the voice, I didn't want them to, uh, uh, it was an act of authority, of course, and I knew that uh, it's something that will be done on post. I did not figure it out exactly how it would sound like, honestly, as I shot. I knew I didn't want to do some, anything gimmicky with the actors. I wanted to, them to, to act as natural as possible, and then I will deal with that uh, in post-production. That's the way I, I knew that there was this idea of inner voice, the power of grandmothers. That's how I knew I wanted, about how to achieve it. Uh, I was still trying to figure it out. Uh, about the visions... Um, it's a, no, I'm, I'm not sure if I can talk about that here. Uh, <laughs> it involved hallucinations, uh, 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 experience, teenagers experience. <laughs> Listen, we were planning on actually having everyone have spice before they came here. <laughs> but, but I will say this, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, sometimes it's very, life is very strange. And, and the truth is that one thing that tremendously helped me to direct Timothy is uh, uh, my son had cooked a banana cake a uh, uh, f- few months before I shot the movie, and the banana cake was very spicy. 
and and I had the worst bad trip of my life. Uh, <laughs> but it tremendously helped me. No, it sounds stupid, but uh, it's good to experience things yourself sometimes. And 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 uh, uh, that uh, uh, bad trip uh, uh, on uh, on uh, marijuana uh, uh, deeply helped me to direct uh, uh, Timothy in the visions. Uh, uh, <laughs> to explain to him the state I was looking for. <laughs> and and uh, he, uh, strangely, when I mentioned the banana cake experience to Timothy, he got it. <laughs> so uh, here's the truth. <laughs> Don't try this. <laughs> voilà. Act it, don't be it. Okay, I'll, I'll let that go for a second. Jane, um, there are you know, incredibly powerful performances by your actors, and oftentimes uh, in silence, some of the, what they don't say has as much effect as what they do say. And I'm interested in what rehearsal process you went through before you started shooting. Yeah, well, I had um, four really amazing actors, like seasoned and, you know, capable, including Cody Smith-McPhee, who kind of stunned me. I mean, you know, in the audition I realized, oh, my God, this is going to be better than the book, you know. Uh, this, this, this young man has uh, understood this character and, um, he's, you know, had all the philosophical backstory for how Peter would understand things and see things and, you know, he was a gift. So... The, the character that I th thought had the greatest journey to make was um, Benedict Cumberbatch with Phil Burbank because uh, they, they're really, you know, very different from each other, <laughs> uh, fortunately. And, um, you know, Ben and I started to talk about what, what would we do, what, what did he need, what did I think he needed, um, what did he think he needed to bridge that gap. I mean, there was all the obvious things like um, being able to play banjo, being able to, or to some degree, um, or look like he could. And he's got an amazing facility for doing a lot of different things. And um, on the ranch, being able to actually plait the rope. He did the, you know, time in Montana um, cowboy camp uh, <laughs> where he really did castrate about, as he came back saying, you know, castrated 11 deer. So he knew how to do it. And I think those sorts of things actually are quite deeply important, give you confidence. Horse riding, he knew already a bit about horse riding. Yeah, horse. Yeah, horse, yeah. Um, then there's just this other aspect. I just had this instinct that we should try something a little bit odd or different and to try and get into those deep spaces, like the secrets that Phil's life basically inhabited, you know, the area of grief, lost love, um, and I was trying to think how we were going to get there. Um, and I asked a friend, oh, do you know any um, therapists that work with, you know, the psyche stuff with actors or anything like that? And she said she did. And that um, her name was Kim Gillingham and um, I met her just, you know, off the cuff and she seemed like, a, you know, not a spooky person, a nice woman. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I, I think I'm going to give this a go. So... Um, I did it first so that we could see what it was like. Um, it was like working with dreams and she explained that, like, if you want to work with your psyche, you've got to throw it some chum. 
uh, so that you can get the creatures from the deep up to the surface. And um, I don't think I've ever been helped by a process as much in my directing and sense of really um, going as far as I can, you know, into the characters and into the story as I was by this process. It was incredible. I mean, it dealt with my anxiety about just directing anyway. So I had a lot of dreams around that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like just, you know, doing crazy things and not knowing what I was doing. And um, the dreams helped reveal like, oh, yeah, you're just really anxious. You You should make some lists and just go through them. And, you know, because I I just had these repetitive dreams. I don't know if you guys have them with um, Mm. fear, really. (laughs) 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 And it was like nothing would move forward, the same old fearful footsteps, you know. Um, And then with this dream that had been revealed with the work with Kim, I'll tell you the dream anyway. It was about this horse, this amazing-looking horse, and I was kind of proud to be riding on it, you know, but... Um, I didn't know the horse at all, so I was, like, showing off, really, and I was um, going down this cliff path, like a bridle path that just got smaller and smaller, and the horse was very, you know, excitable. And as we got, as the path got closer, <laughs> narrower and narrower, I was thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> this is going to be difficult because I don't think I can reverse out of this. Um, and there was really, in the end, in my dream, nowhere for the horse to go, you know, <laughs> And there was just certain death. Um, anyway, when I was... <laughs> it seems like such an obvious dream. But <laughs> you know, with someone to facilitate me getting my way out of my fear... Um, I, I realised, like, I know about horses, you know, like well, what I should have done was get to know the horse, do all that groundwork, you know, get bend its back, bend this way, bend that, get it to listen to me um, by getting to, you know, touching the horse all over and then just creating this relationship between the horse and me and then, you know, I would have a chance. The horse would be listening. I'd go down that thing, we could reverse out, something would happen, you know. Basically, it was a metaphor for my film. Mm. You know, I had to get to know my film. I had to get to know everything about it. And then, um, you know, I had to f- figure out ways to do that because one thing to say, oh, I've got the script here and I've got to get to know it, you know. Uh, how? You know, it's difficult. And um, that was um, one of the ways that I helped myself, but Benedict working with this character also. And also me working to understand Phil, you know, went to some places where I could get to talk to Phil um, and she would facilitate me having a conversation with Phil or Phil telling me things like, uh, I was doing a lot of talking, okay. Did a complicated. <laughs> You'd say, what, what, is, what has Phil got to tell Jane about what she needs to do? And um, out of me would come this voice says, oh, uh, she's got to get, bit, uh, she's got to get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she can take off her little white coat. She wants to tell my story. (laughs) Did Benedict stay in character so that you would address him as Phil all the time? Yes. I didn't remember if I said, hey, Phil. I'm sure I said Ben or something. He might have said Phil. But he did stay in character, and it was really helpful, I think, for him because Benedict is a very um, pleasing person. He likes to be kind and, you know, lovely to everybody and can I help you and do this? And I said, oh, no, no, that's all going to stop. It's uh, 
Um, you don't help anybody with anything. <laughs> and if anybody offers you anything, oil, you never say thank you. And you, you say no to almost everything. Just say, you know, five no's a day, please, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he also did this work with Kim. He said it was transformative for him. And it seems that Kirsten and Jesse also have a dream person that they frequently work with. It just takes the work to a new level and depth. And with these, you know, seasoned professionals, that's what they're always looking for, that extra um, interest and something to really ground their um, knowing about the character. So when they came to rehearsal, and we do three weeks of it, um, they all sort of packed their bags a little bit with what they had and it was quite hard to persuade them to unpack um, and let whatever happened between us as a group have some influence on it. Um, but, but they did do it. And um, what we did during that time is like over the years, I now really don't rehearse the scenes very much. But what I try to do is or I try to copy actually what I can understand that Francis Ford Coppola did <laughs> in The Godfather. And I, you know, watched his rehearsals and what he did. And because I think the performances in that film are just like so extraordinary. Um, and you'd believe everybody so much. They're just so grounded and nobody's making apparently any effort, you know, they just are. And I, I think it was, you know, possibly the golden time of the method um, performance or method work that had been emerging from New York. And what he would do was quite often like um, do a lot of improvisation with backstories or improvisation, like just a very simple thing, like everybody would attend dinner and then you just get the energy in your body about how you fit into this group. This scene is not in the film or anything, but you'd start to discover who you are with all the other people and there's a deeper and deeper trust, I think, of the um, of, of how you sense yourself to be in, in the um, in the story and in relationship to the different characters. Um, did Co Cody join that project? Cody did. They were all there. Yeah, Cody and Jesse, Kirsten, and... Um, then um, we started off with Ben and Cody. And, I mean, the other thing was that what I really love is that, as you were saying, basically you're building a relationship, building mm. a friendship and a trust mm. with but them, and, I, and you get to know each other so that there is, you know, that... Um, I heard you speak specifically that you asked Kirsten and for them, to, the, for Phil and Rose to not know each other and not say... Is that, well, they uh, didn't have very many scenes together in actual fact, so... Right. That was um, pretty easy, you know, like Kirsten was always making fun of Ben that he wasn't very frightening. <laughs> That's not very helpful, Kirsten. <laughs> She's well, like, he's got to know, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, they're not dolls. They just say what they like <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, got it. Well, thanks, Jane. Um Stephen, new kind of rehearsal for you? Because I know you've gone through various films and used rehearsal and not. Where was this one? All the rehearsal was focused on dancing and singing. I don't rehearse. Um, I consider the first take rehearsal. I don't direct actors in pods or in groups. I give individual direction uh, uh, because, you know, what? if I make an adjustment after a take or two, if I make an adjustment... I don't want the other. I don't want the other actors understanding what new is going to come at them that wasn't there in take one. Mm -hmm. 
So I do all of the direction really ind- independently, individually, and I do it very quietly. Um, the thing that I'm most in- interested in is what is the actor going to bring to the character that I haven't thought of yet. I'm just looking to be surprised. And I was very lucky on this on this story because um, everyone was fiercely independent. They had really strong ideas about themselves, especially Mike Feist, who played Riff. He was incredibly independent in his ideas about how to play this guy. And I waited for him to come to me with ideas because I ran out of ideas when I first met him, the Fritten rehearsal. He was so smart and he was so on top of the role and he had so many different ways he wanted to play it that I just, he, he was he was alive, he was a he was sort of a live wire and I just felt that my best job would be to service the film was to step out of his way and let him do whatever he felt like doing. And th- an example, there's a scene in the bar where he's going to buy a, purchase a weapon, purchase a gun. And the Irish uh, bartender who knew his father very well is kind of fucking with him. And uh, at one point just takes the gun and puts it, points it at him. And while the camera's rolling and this wasn't scripted and this wasn't expected and there was no, no line written for it, Mike Feist playing Riff just leaned forward and pressed his own forehead to the barrel of the gun and said, you might as well. And, and, and that's because he was the embodiment of this very, of, of, this, of this very desperate teenager, sort of at the end of his wits, at the end of his hope, that was willing to accept a bullet, take a bullet in that moment and never go through with the rumble that he had actually initiated. In our story, it's the Jets that start the fight, not the Puerto Ricans. And, and, and so when I meet an actor like this, it's gold. It's like, it's like being a gold miner and where I don't have to use a pick or a shovel or anything. I could just sit back and he fills the trough. You know, he just fills the trough. He just like the sleuth in, 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 in Treasure of Sierra Madre. I mean, that gold came from the mountain of Mike Feist every single day. When did you, when did you know? When, what? when did you know that Mike Feist was going to be able to do this? On meeting? Or? On first, on, it, was, it was sort of, I knew it the first time I met him. Uh, the first time he read for us. First he danced. That was, the process was this. Uh, they, I, I auditioned everybody on tape. I saw all of their singing auditions first. And then all of the dance was done live. I went to a big dance rehearsal studio at Lincoln Center, ironically the place that they <laughs> poured the, they threw all the Puerto Ricans out in order to build the Lincoln Center. And here we are rehearsing at the Lincoln Center for the first time. And, uh, and here was, uh, you know, and that, that was the second tranche or the second tier of getting the part was could they follow Justin's steps and Justin didn't give them the steps ahead of time for them to practice. It's just like chorus line. You've seen, wow. all seen chorus line. They, they show up and they just learn the steps. Um, they have some kind of a dancer somehow can, can memorize these steps the second they're shown one time only and then they have to perform and I got to go through a whole new, I mean, I, I, mean, I was like, when I made the movie, I was 72. I'm 75 now. I was 72 when I started making the movie. I'm seeing things I never experienced before. I'm seeing an entirely different medium that, that, it, that is time-worn, much longer than movies, yeah. much longer than television. This goes way back hundreds of years. And I'm suddenly a part of this magic that's been going on for hundreds of years. And I, I, I was mystified by it, and I was intimidated by it, and I was enchanted by it. And so I just did what I've always been taught to do by my parents, which is to shut up and listen as much as you possibly can. <laughs> and I listened and I learned. And I learned from the best. Justin Peck is the best. And, and, um, and so that was the rehearsal, basically. That's, but when it came to the acting, we had one table read. We sat the entire cast down. 
and they all read the script around the table. Singing or not? Everything. Everything. Singing. They didn't, they, if they danced, they kind of moved a little bit like this, you know. Uh, there was a couple of funny moments where they were trying to do cool from their chairs. It's very hard to do cool from their chairs, but they did. And, um, and then the other thing was just as the, as the table read reached the inevitable conclusion, which is obviously all out of Romeo and Juliet, which is what, what Jer- Jerome Robbins conceived with what Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence and, and, uh, and Stephen Sondheim, this was going to be a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. So as the table read got closer to the end, all the actors started crying. And so that t- took me right out of it immediately because they're all, they're, 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 they're speaking and they're weeping at the same time, which is immediately the, I, they, they always say it's the kiss of death because if you're making a comedy and the crew laughs, nobody in the preview audience will laugh. <laughs> the second the crew laughs, it's not funny. It really is. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I thought, was, well, does that apply to music too? <laughs> They're all crying. Is this the kiss of death for this movie? You know, will nobody cry when we make the when we finally show the film? And so it was. It was an interesting. It was a something that Tony Kushner uh, really, uh, rightfully insisted on. He wanted to hear his words read by the actors. I would have ordinarily not had a table read for West Side Story or anything really, but I did it for Tony, and we learned a lot. We learned a lot about pacing, about what should be cut. Um, but when it comes to rehearsal, everybody just sort of gathered the first day of shooting and. And the first thing we shot was the song. The first thing we shot was Behind the Bleachers, where right. Tony and Maria come behind the bleachers. Right. And they do the minuet. That was the first thing shot on the Did, entire But you were just about to tell us also how Mike Weiss made an impression on you. Because here he is now. You've seen him on tape. And he's yeah. now just learned this dance number. And he's come forward. Do you remember what it was that said, this is, this is going to be gold? Well, just that, um, you know, you just know it when you... You know, you may meet somebody in real life, and we, you know we're all we're all filmmakers to every every degree of the arts, and we all do it in this room. And you know, even when you're sitting talking to people you've never met before, there's always that one person you can't take your eyes off of. It's like there's something stands out. Something is just uh, uh, something is just. There's an energy that pulls your attention away to an individual or several individuals. And Mike had an energy that was impossible. Ariana DeBose, Ari had an energy when she came in to meet me for the first time. I had actually met her. I didn't realize it, but I met her backstage after I saw Hamilton for the first time. In Hamilton, she's the bullet that goes across the stage. And I, I don't really, meeting her, she was very quiet and she was sort of in the shadows. And this time she did the same thing. She was uh, in the rehearsal. She danced for us. I already knew that she could sing. She had done, she had gotten a Tony, Tony nomination for playing Donna Summer several years before that. And, uh, and, and, and yet there was something about her energy that kept pulling me over to her. And she was doing everything she could to disappear in a room of 90 dancers and singers. It's, it's like Ringling Brothers. You have to imagine that Patricia Delgado, Justin's now wife, but the assistant choreographer is rehearsing 15 dancers in one area. Craig, the third, third assistant choreographer, is rehearsing another 15 dancers. Justin's with about 30. And I'm trying to have conversations with some of the people that we're pulling out of the line. It is just like Roy Scheider at the beginning of Bob Fosse's, of all that jazz. It's just like the beginning of all that jazz. And I just thought that was movies. I thought that's what you do. You make this stuff up and it's visual and there's a lot of colors and you put the camera anywhere and have people leaping over the camera. That's what a musical is, you know. I didn't realize that, no, 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 this is what they really do. And, 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 and so when we came time to make the movie, it was sort of my turn, I just did what I always do, which is essentially say, roll and action. 
And, and all the adjustments I make is after everybody. Because when, when actors say the words for the first time, they may rehearse together at home. They may go out and rehearse together. They can do that. I, I, I encourage that. But not kids. I don't let kids rehearse. I don't let parents rehearse with their kids. That, that is the kiss of death. But... <laughs> but but I, I find that when... Um, when you're, I'm on the set, we're, we're all on the set, and it all begins, uh, there is a kind of virginity that is lost the first time the camera rolls, and you can't get that on take two. And and Sidney Lumet, uh, who I was honored to know, not well, but I was honored to know him, he only did two takes. And he only did a second take if something technically went wrong. And in the extraordinary event that his, his lead, like Henry Fonda, was producing his first movie, 12 Angry Men, maybe he did four or five takes because Henry Fonda said, I'm your boss. We're doing more than one take. <laughs> but Lamette rehearsed like crazy. He rehearsed like a theater director. Right. But only did one or two takes. And the reason he did one or two takes, he, he told me years and years ago, is because it's the, it's the petit more, mm-hmm. you know, that little death that happens the first time something happens. And then you have to move on. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, talking about rehearsal, uh, Ken, this, I think you come from a world of rehearsals, mm-hmm. obviously theater. What did you do in this picture in terms of rehearsal? And you also have, again, a boy who's never, I guess, acted before. Uh, yeah. How did you handle rehearsals? Well, I, I found that I've, I've tried to sort of uh, evolve uh, with it and not necessarily insist that I have them. One thing I learned or feel as though I've learned is that it's never great. I used to rehearse it's usually a contractual thing. Or oh, you've only got the actors and they come in three days before they're due to start. They come in a week before because of money or time. I haven't found that that's very good because that's right at the sharp end of decision-making about, you know, about being about to start shooting. So, um, so I, I try and do it if I can. I would try and negotiate to have the actors maybe a month ahead of the start of shooting and maybe for a week, maybe. And, and then all of the things that come out of rehearsal don't have that horrible wire up the backside of you're going to start shooting in four or five days' time, and you can action some of the things that come out of it, the prop that is wanted or the, you know, the, perhaps the help with an accent or a something or a bit of research or a bit of reference or whatever. And as you say, you, know, you get to know people a bit and try and sort of take that side, take, mm. take some of the pressure off um, needing to come up with something. So, you know, like base camp is I'll perhaps get to know all oh, my instinct is this person doesn't like it if I say more than half a dozen words. I can see their eyes crossing with boredom or, you know, I just, this one wants to talk and this is great and, you know, and, and then sometimes you've got to manage it a bit because maybe the other one isn't talking because they are talking. Maybe talking doesn't matter. Maybe you don't have to talk, you know. Um, and like, uh, like James is saying, the, uh, I felt as though I developed the idea that not, don't rehearse the scenes very much, but find a way, find a way to make something real. So, for instance, in Belfast, one of the things I did, we, so we had them for about a week together in, in various forms. COVID was always a bit of an issue and people being in different places but we had them a week, about a couple of weeks before we started. And so one of the challenges was, okay, how do we, how do we create um, beyond, obviously, their professional ability to imagine that Judy and Kieran as Granny and Pop have known each other and been married for a long, long time? So um, the same with Jamie and Katrina and also the boy. Uh, one of the things was to, from my point of view, was to say, look, 
just so you know, although I'm perfectly willing to answer these questions, Jamie's first question to me was, how much did your father bet? So the character in the movie goes to the booking shop quite a lot. There's an issue about back tax and basically wanted to get a sense of what, what, what was the gambling part of my father. And I said, well, I can take you through that. And yes, he did have a problem with the tax people. And yes, he did like to have a bet and everything. I could take you through all of that. However, I think the, the, the goal for me would not be for you to do a sort of encyclopedic delve into how can you do a documentary about my parents, but I would love, may I start instead by asking you about your own father, you know, simply to start to talk about what, what, what you notice or what you have, you know, um, intuited or, or inherited or whatever. And so the beginnings of rehearsal was to say, look, the goal is not to get inside my head. I would now like you to own this. So let's talk about families not this family, although, I, you know, it's not exclusive. If that's the way you'd like to do it, I can give you some specifics. But I reckon that'll be limiting in terms of what I would like, you know, because as you say, I definitely want, you know, there's a lot of people here. I'd like all of your talent, please. Um, you know, my goal would be to direct it. I literally point, I'd point in one direction all that stuff and you can send it there, etc. But with Judy and Kieran, Judy's eyes are not very good, so she can't really... Read to be perfectly honest. When when she got when she decided she wanted to do it, I had to go down and read the whole script to her. One one more terrifying experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do do all the. Plus, I hadn't. I'd never read it out loud myself anyway. So I was also he's kind of hearing my first draft, and my audience is named Judy Dench. Thank you very much. <laughs> Eighty-seven years, squinty billion Oscar nominations, and every prize known to man. And a great artist, and, and although a very nice person and very polite, I would say someone with a ruthless artistic conscience. Mm. So, uh, so I would say that the very real possibility existed and hung over this meeting, the word N-O. Uh, you know, <laughs> thank you very much, it's very nice, but I don't think it's for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she, she listened to it, and, she, and then she said, um, and it was, I got very choked r- reading it, and, uh, and she was very, very sensitive and kind about that in as much as she didn't mention it. Just we just it happened. When we got to the first day of rehearsal, uh, she wanted to ask about a journal in the movie called the the People's Friend. The People's Friend was a little magazine that my my granny read every week. It was a religious, quasi religious journal, but essentially it was a group of romantic stories. It was a page of romantic stories per sheet of the thing, and so because she couldn't read. And she didn't know what the people's friend was, and she'd never met Kieran. I said, for what it's worth, if you could bear it, Kieran, could you read one of the stories from the people's friend? We have an edition of it here to Judy. And so uh, we had to be separate, you know, physically because of uh, COVID. So Kieran started reading, and he has a very, as you hear or know if you've seen the film, and you know his work, he's a marvellous actor, been marvellous in, in, in films for, for Paul and, 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 and Stephen. And um, he's got a wonderful, soulful Irish voice. He's very sort of, you know, um, full of beautiful colours. It's a story, this, this, you know, dark magazine in a way, but very important to my granny, uh, about uh, a, a woman who is the sole daughter of the house in a remote Scottish village where a young man who lodges with them uh, stays through her upbringing. Little does he know she's fallen for him. She carries a torch for him. He goes away to become a doctor and eventually comes back and has never understood or even noticed this young woman until finally something happens and she helps him out and he realizes that the woman he's been looking for all his life and the man that she's been looking for all her life, they're in the same 
front room, as it were, and it's, uh, it's like a sort of a Mills and Boone romance. It's very, be still my beating heart. It's that kind of uh, <laughs> thing. Anyway, it's just a page. It takes five minutes to read. Kieran does a wonderful job. Then he has to go to the loo. The door closes, and she goes, I've just fallen in love with him. <laughs> And so, so this is a good rehearsal. So that was a good rehearsal. <laughs> and so while he was in the loo, she just went, went on a list of, isn't he marvellous? And that voice, oh my God. <laughs> God. And that hair, I can't see it very well. It's very long, very oily. Very nice. He's very exotic, isn't he? Um, so by the time he walks back in from the loo, uh, she's in love with Pop. Uh, and and then, the, then the goal was to, was to try and let young Jude, young 10-year-old Jude, sort of, be aware of that, be, be aware of the fun of that, and then try and um, do, as you were saying, we, we, I did want him, it's such a balance, so I wanted him to know his lines, because I knew, I said to everybody, it's COVID, uh, you know, we're going to change things, if there's a great piece of weather, we'll, we'll change, you know, we'll do the scene from Thursday, and you'll need to be ready, but please... Uh, Jude's mum, Shawnine, don't get him all lickety-spick on this. It's just a sort of a level of familiarity that means he won't do what happened that morning you were describing. I didn't, because of that, I did have one experience of that with him. And it's horrible seeing a nine-year-old boy. Mm. I felt like one time when I was at school and there'd been homework to hand in, I hadn't heard it and I hadn't got it ready. And there I was in the class and, you know, I, I felt so terrible about it. I saw one morning where the kid was, I, you know, I, the lip was about to go and the tears were about to start. And so I realized we had to let him know in advance, but we couldn't over-prepare him. So... Then, when it did come to shooting, the goal was often to just put the camera back here, not even necessarily tell people what it was about. And we, we, we did not rehearse. We just let them, let them go. And in creating the family, because just like you created Palma, in creating the family that you is, is part of, how did, did they get, did James and Katrina spend some time with him before you started shooting so that it was a family? Well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I think one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes with young people, people can make, and actors with the best intentions, can make an over-effort to be new best friend. I've been on a couple of things where I've seen the kids spoiled. By the end of the movie, they're gone. Everything that was beautiful is gone because with the best of intentions, there's been an over-something or other. Um, and you've just you made it too... I mean, it's not... It, Jesus, it's amazing. And a kid is being at the center of a movie, sees all this going on. This is a smart lad. He knew the whole thing was on his shoulder. So did I, Jesus Christ. So I didn't, I did, I, you know, I didn't want to overburden him. Um, and somehow Jamie got three kids of his own. Katrina, who was just about to be a mama, uh, had, but anyway, just intuitively understood, is just try and find the way to be as real as possible. Keep just, like, we're all going to work. You know, we're all going to work, and this is the work that we do. We have certain things we've got to do. We do this, and the, our props team are going to bring these for us, you know, and the people are going to paint this, and everybody's all doing the same thing, slightly different departments. So they, they kept that real. He also saw they, 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 their bonding moment was, and this is often, I think, very helpful, is they had an activity. So first afternoon, after Kieran had done his reading, such that afternoon they were dancing, so they had to learn a routine, and that's a vulnerable making thing. And um, and and Jude was there for that, and, um, and and so he understood somehow there was a normalizing thing. People doing their work, being vulnerable and sort of professional about it, and keep keeping it at a kind of 
medium temperature, not to deny joy and not to deny people caring about it and getting worked up, but somehow finding some positive middle way that this boy could negotiate and find was relatively normal. In, in terms of performance for, of the boy, there are some moments that are pretty astounding. Um, some are complex, like that opening 300, two 360-degree mm-hmm. shot. Um, but there are also some simple ones, and I'm wondering how they happen, like when his mother opens the door after he's stolen the uh, soap and his face is uh, in, in utter horror. I have no idea how that moment happened, but uh, I'd be interested to know. Well, he, he does have a very, very natural quality. He's got genuine humor himself. He's a funny lad in life, so we tried not to get in the way of that. I was saying to Stephen the other day, it's the God's honest truth. When we were trying to find him, we saw 300 uh, self-tapes from young fellows all, all over the island of Ireland. And uh, Lucy Bevan and Emily Brockman, our casting directors, early on said, can we show you this? And it was your screen test for Henry Thomas for the role That's in E.T., uh, which you may have seen. If you haven't, I warmly yeah. recommend you. Your, your, um, uh, both the film and the screen test. Um, uh, and, uh, it's a good but, but the, uh, but the, uh, the, the, the screen test to which I refer, um, I, I don't know whether you kindly allowed it to be up. No, it's everywhere on now. The interweb, it's out but, there. Yeah. But uh, both what you said and how the, in it and how the child responded was something I have very strongly had in mind as I was trying to find and trying to find a way to talk to uh, Jews as well Um, and so it was a yeah so much was sort of about about getting out of the way as is always or at least it's my experience when you can somehow allow the nature to occur then um, I mean the person that Judy Dench at 87 with all her you know art and craft the person she made for on day one was Jude Hill at, at nine years old that's who she wanted to build a relationship with and that's who that's the one who she wanted to see the sort of uh, the reality of, the, the in the moment of, the presence of. And um, so, uh, you know, w- there was, a, there was a, an element to it which was just trying to let the, let the kid be uh, as he was. And in so doing, he became a kind of beacon for all the others with Jamie, Katrina and Kieran all following Jude, Judy Dench's lead of keep an eye on him because he's, you know, you, you'll have to keep up with this kid because otherwise... Cause, if he's if if he stays like this and we're not careful, we'll get caught out acting, um, you know. And suddenly we'll be the ones who look like we're schmacting when the kid is like a you know a little ding in the middle of it. So Judy, I think, was there, and you could see her as she started to, as Judy started to do scenes with him, she started to do less and less and less. You know, she just started to take things away. The scene on the bus. Yeah, yeah. in order to make sure. Yeah, she was magic with him in, in that. And by that stage, of course, they were like sort of granny and grandson. They, had, they really made each other laugh as well. Did you yeah. use two cameras on that? Uh, did I use two cameras? Yes, I did, I did. Yes, that, that was for, yes. Because you had the profile of him. That's right, yeah. and that's why it's, a, yeah, it's, we, we, rather than come round or make extra time coverage, right. you had to yeah, try and grab it at the same time. That was an interesting one, because you're thinking, who do you, because it's a great scene for her, you don't want to, I want to make it all about whatever makes her, whatever, but you don't want to overwork him. And what I used to do, uh, if this isn't, uh, I don't know if you did this or any of you do this, but, for instance, there's a lovely uh, um, mood in the scene in the hospital between Kieran and the kid. And I said to Kieran, um, what do you want to do? Um, 
it's your scene really, um, but he's obviously key. I'm happy to shoot you first, and then I'm happy for you to go away if you'd like, because I'm going to be an age with him. Um, um, and I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to have. Uh, in fact, he can be off camera, and we can, we can just please work it any which way you'd like. He'll be here, but I could also be here as well if that's better. Whatever lets you do anything that is the additional coloring, as it were. We'll we'll capture the moment of the happening, but there'll be an an element of just, we'll have to, it's a very long, complicated scene for him. And so there I found myself, um, Kieran did head off because there was like, it was hours and hours and hours of talking to the boy and doing the lines and suggesting some things, doing different, different things off for the script, etc. And then when he was up to, when he, the flame was absolutely underneath, we yelled, Kieran, back, 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 back. And then we tried to get the pair of them together with two That's cameras. Great. Got it. Got great. it. By the way, that door opening, that moment, that fright, do you remember how the kid got there? He's just a funny boy. So it was just that moment. I'm afraid that's all him. Jude Hill, thank you very much, I'd say. Does this include, too, there's a wonderful moment when the father has left, and it's a a, um, a profile of the boy where he's alone. And uh, I don't know if you remember the shot. I do, no, I remember it because it's one of, we were touching on this relative to something else. That was one of the moments where, you know, where you just, uh, you you see something, and it felt like, I don't know what he did, but the quality of the look, it felt like it was, it was, I felt like I was watching the crossover from childhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he, well, he knew what he was acting, but somehow he seemed to embody it in a way that was so heartbreaking because it felt so lonely. Had you told him something? He was aware, we played him, we played him this Van Morrison um, version of um, Carrick Fergus, which is an old uh, Irish heir, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, he, it's, it's Van Morrison and the Chieftains play, playing the, the harp on that as well. You know, a great Irish, Irish band. And it's just one of those things that, like Danny Boy, there's a superior remark Noel Coward made, made once about the, the, the potency of cheap music. And with uh, Carrick Fergus, it's just the man, father leaves, it's dawn once again. Uh, and he says, you know, I, you know, If I could could swim over the sea to get you, I would. And the kid has that. So he was listening to that. Wow. And uh, that just that that thing of that sort of that separation. I don't know whether what it's like for you, but the um, uh, you know the thing of um, I don't know how you say cheerio to people you love. I I wave the whole time. I wave until you can't see them. Um, And uh, it was was that kind of of moment. And the kid kid got it in a way that just... uh, The music divided it. Yeah, it broke my heart. That was one of the ones we have to to walk away for a bit. Definitely have to walk away for a bit. Stephen, there's a moment, uh, and again, this is about performance, because I'm going to ask each one of you about a specific and maybe how you may have gotten it. When Anita is singing the song, A Boy Like That, there's a moment when she breaks down that is so arresting and it's in the midst of a song so it's yes talk about it well this uh, uh, a boy like that was done was was done live it was live singing and um every shot was live we didn't we did one protection take for playback and and uh, and also as a guide track we we did do one as a guide track every single setup had one playback which we never used everything else was done live and when you when you sing live as opposed to playback, even though, as I said earlier, you're putting your heart into the song, even though you hear your own voice in your earbuds, 
you're still putting your heart into it. But when you know it's live and you can really hear yourself and the only thing in your ear is the orchestra turned down very low and you hear the other person, uh, there is something that happens, which is why we hire great actors to be in our movies because it's something that's beyond my understanding. It's something beyond any of our understandings. There is something that could be called kismet or it just could be called sort of divine inspiration that occasionally happens that we also call it magic. And you walk away when you feel that the magic has happened because magic like that only is going to happen once. And that song had so many magic moments for both Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria and Ari, Ariana DeBose. Um, but they got to a point in the song because I was shooting a lot of it in, 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 in long sustained masters. So they could work up to these moments. So they didn't have to camera cut with me. They didn't have to get to a point and stop. Uh, they actually went beyond what I used. So they, they're actually singing beyond where I actually cut and went to another setup. And because of that, they were able to um, bring themselves to a an unconscious state of authenticity and, and purity, purity that um, required a lot of counseling when the take was over. They would both retreat to their spaces on the set and they would just sob. And they had their... Their, their friends, they had their sort of, com their therapeutic companions that were there usually in hair and makeup, who they, you, you, as you know, we know everybody, hair and makeup knows more gossip than anybody else <laughs> on a movie. They hear it all and they keep it all to themselves. But, but they also are tremendous when you get into an emotional state where you can't recover and you're crying and so they went to their areas and, and sometimes it was quite a while before they could come back to do another take. And they did it with relish. They didn't do it, oh, no, we have to go through this again, because they were they kept searching for other levels. Uh, and they also knew it was the last time they were ever going to do that song. You got to the point in a movie where there's a wonderful scene, and you love the writing, and the actors adore the writing. And when the scene is over, it's like Petit Mort. They die a little bit because they're never going to do it again. It's not theater. They don't have another performance tomorrow and twice on, 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 on Wednesday. It's over. Right. And so every time a great scene that is great on paper is, 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 is transported into some twilight zone by the actors, they all feel that, that kind of postpartum depression, that they're never going to have a chance to ever do that again. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's unique to our business of making television and movies. It's so unique to what we do. Well spoken. Well spoken. Jane, there's a, a moment when Phil um, is alone. His brother has now gotten married. There's a, a, a big close-up on him, and then there's a close-up on the key that, that gets locked in the door, and you come back to him. And there's so much happening in that, and there's no dialogue in this particular moment. And I'm wondering if you remembered how that particular performance evolved at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember if I already decided to have it, but anyway, the pandemic sort of cut our, our shoot in half. And one of the advantages of it, of course, there was a lot of horror and people suffering, but it really created for me what was the ideal shoot, like shoot half, have a few couple of months off, and then shoot the second half and you can kind of recover and look at what you did and see how you want to improve it. And um, we'd done the exteriors and what 
I was looking at and noticing was just how interesting it was when Ari was working close with um, Benedict, that something seemed to come out, maybe when you were talking about Stephen, that, that sense that, you know, these magical creatures act as they can be in the moment somehow, you know. And so I planned to do more work like that with him when we got on set. And um, there's this time uh, when... Rose has just arrived and Phil is, of course, um, not happy, not welcoming, not pleasant to her. He does really believe that his brother's wife is um, couldn't be there for any other reason than to take advantage of his money because in his mind um, his brother doesn't have anything to offer a woman, which, you know, he just is not able to see his brother. And now, you know, for the first time Phil's in his bedroom by himself and they share a bathroom, you know, and... Parents' room is just um, on the other side of that bathroom. And um, I mean, I always thought, and I often get actually a little bit disturbed by being too close to other people's <laughs> rooms sometimes when you can hear breathing or stuff or, you know, toiletry activities. Um, I even extend that sometimes, like, to the neighbours next door, you know, like, oh, my God, they got, they're lying in their bed right now, you know, like, just on the other side of my wall, you know. <laughs> It's a, it's a disturbing habit I have. <laughs> anyway, I lent that sort of to fill in this situation and was um, just imagining, you know, Rose coming into that bathroom and thinking, oh, my God, the, that brother's just there. So she, you know, locks the door and um, Phil, it, it, I guess just going in very tight there is, is just like, you know, this, that act of focusing on something completely and utterly. And he's, you know, able to imagine her in the other room and that this is the new order of things and he's alone. He's alone. You know, this, this big tyrannical man is um, very vulnerable. And um, in his own house, not able to, uh, yeah, feels uh, displaced. Did you did you speak to them? The language you just used now, which is a description of what that moment is. To, did, to Benedict. Yes. Did you need to say anything? Or was there, for example, yeah, ben, was there ben a Ben and I just too? gabble to each other. It's like, you know, a couple of monologists, you know. I just wait till his monologue's over and then I have a go. Swap <laughs> 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 back and forth. And I don't know how much he's heard mm-hmm. or... But we're like a brother, sister or friends or whatever and, you know, the, nothing is off limits. We just can say anything we want to and after a while I might say, okay, no, let's just do it now, you know, <laughs> because you could go on. <laughs> and um, let's just try everything, everything we've talked about. Let's, let's do it. Let's go. Go. Okay, shoot. And I, I find that very effective, like just get that camera rolling. And then it's just like his platform, it's his stage. Um, and Ben has got this emotional capacity, which is kind of extraordinary, to, you know, feel um, in, a, in a way that, you know, maybe not that many men do. Well, can't be said about you, Ken. When Kirsten is playing junk, which is a really, you know, yeah. a difficult thing to do because you don't want to indicate you're drunk and yet yeah, there's right. amazing performances, particularly one when she falls down uh, yeah. going uh, with, with the gloves. Um, what conversation did you have about how she's going to uh, portray alcoholism? Yeah, we did talk about it. 
we talked about a few strategies. She had quite a few strategies herself, like one was just spinning before a take, just spinning on the spot and then, you know, that would does make you actually genuinely dizzy. Mm. And then we would have our secret formula, which was like a quick drink maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I put you next to me. <laughs> but you know, you got the timing on that has to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, and we didn't use it very often. <laughs> we didn't use it very often. Um, it was just in that scene where she was pretty drunk with her son, and I was really interested to see what would happen, you know, <laughs> and how it would go, and, and and what did happen was it really worked, and then it went off, you know. Mm. Yeah. And then we had to sort of get it back <laughs> and, we, yeah, and <laughs> do some more. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jenny. I mean, you know, it's fun. You know? <laughs> yes, it can be. Um, questionable performance, uh, Timothy's hand in the box. What did you have him go through, Denny? It was, uh, it, was, it was at the beginning of the, of the shoot. And uh, it, we were coming out of all those, those talk about the characters. And, and it's like... A, it's always frightening. Uh, I mean, there's like when actor I have to deal with uh, surreal events or, or, or that where the, it's some actors have a lot of imagination, others are, are it's, uh, and it's like uh, it was quite frightening uh, uh, and quite uh, quite reward, rewarding day uh, because uh, 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 shooting that scene. Uh, working with Timothy, I I, uh, I realized at that precise moment that I had made the right choice as an actor. I don't know about you, but there's always at the beginning uh, there's a moment moment of verity, a truth moment where camera rolls. It's the first days, and you will see if you fucked it up or, or if you, you made the right choice. And uh, of course, he's a, he's a, he proved himself in many movies, but. Uh, and uh, there was uh, the idea of, of stillness. Uh, I was fascinated with the idea that it, it will need to be as still as possible and to endure a tremendous amount of pain and you will have to control. It was a scene both in the mother and the son. Will, it seems where they are, both of them, because of their education, will uh, in, be in need to, they have the ability to control uh, uh, either the, the fear or the pain. And, and uh, it was to find that balance uh, uh, that is easily more expressed in a book, but in a movie, I need to find that balance where we, we express enough, but in some, you feel the restricts, that it restricts us. So we, we talked a lot about putting an end in a, in a toaster and what it will feel, feel like. And, 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 and that's where that, the images that came from that. And, and uh, um, yeah. Did you tell the, him specific things that were actually happening to him at this moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it's a thing that I love is to be close and, and to talk. With some actors, it's, uh, some of them hate that, so I don't do it. But with Timothy, uh, uh, it's uh, very early on. We started. I, I started to talk to him, uh, whisper uh, to him as the scene goes, and, and uh, I will say that we were all deeply afraid of Charlotte Rampling, and 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 uh, she was a very <laughs> powerful figure in the room, and that helped the scene tremendously. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Did you say what literally, I mean, as you were talking to him at this moment, did you say what literally was happening? Did you say your hand is burning or any, any words that were said? I understand we, we control. Talk, yeah, we were talking about the, 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 the sensation of the pain coming from burnt, yeah. From? Uh, from being burnt, yes. yes uh, and did you do, do you remember doing a number of takes on this or do you remember this? 
Unfor uh, uh, unfortunately, I remember that that day I did a tremendous amount of takes. Uh, uh, Timothy was exhausted, but uh, I was impressed by his commitment, and uh, I I, um, I tried. Uh, uh, I didn't. I was not working with several cameras. I, I was working with one camera, and I needed uh, several uh, um, angles, and I didn't want to compromise on the lenses. So I, I was like, uh, and he was very generous, and uh, but. Uh, uh, there's a moment when the character endured so much pain that there's something that uh, is awakening inside him, a force. And, and uh, I was Timothy to, uh, asking Timothy to rise and have defiance in, in, in his eyes looking at Charlotte. And, and I was amazed uh, at that. Uh, there's a moment uh, where his face transformed. When I saw that he was, I saw this was a kind of exorcist, you know, and there was something awakening. And he truly did that on camera. And I knew at that moment that I did the right casting. And you use that word, awakening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like uh, he, he, um, he's a tremendous actor, yeah. I've seen. All right. Paul, I want to deal with laughter. Um, mainly because there's a scene where all of them are in the car and they're all laughing hysterically. Um, and I'm curious, because uh, we don't have any setup and we've had to see the scene before that, but there's something missing here. Do you remember how you got them all to be? Uh... Yeah, there was, a, well, there was something that, there was a joke I think that was written that one of the characters is saying. And I, I think I, my memory is that I kept, it fresh by adding stuff to it would sort of whisper something to one of them to say that kind of thing but you don't if you have six teenagers in a car <laughs> you don't really have to do that much that you just have, you, know, you just have to be rolling <laughs> Were there moments for you where it was really challenging for getting a performance, moments you had to redirect that really stand out for you? Well, there was a scene, yeah, and, and the mistake is to think that it was, that, it was that, that I had to redirect the performance or the scene was bad and it didn't need to be in the movie and it wasn't well written and it was like you kind of bang your head against the wall because you think it's an important thing and you think perhaps the actor isn't engaged emotionally, not that you're placing blame, but you're, you, you're just trying to, to discover why this isn't connecting to you or to this person who is faking it. And you feel it, and it's embarrassing. Um, they're out there trying, and the truth is it's not, it's just, it's not going to end up in the movie. It was like a scene late in the game, and it just wasn't very good. And we kind of knew that, but you can't really admit that at the time. Someone's like pouring their heart out. They're sort of trying to give it to you, but, and everybody kind of knows, and it's late at night, and it's hard. It's a hard one for the crew, and everybody kind of feels a little edgy. But that's okay, because we'd been, we'd been going great, guns, and everything was good, and to get to a clunker every once in a while is okay. Just don't, don't let it go on too long. May I, if I may, did you have the temptation to reapproach the scene in a different way after? Oh, my, for sure. We talked about it for weeks. We're going to go back and get that scene. We're going to knock it out of the park. We're not, you know, we were, we were like fighters who'd been knocked out who were like, <laughs> ah, just give me a rematch and I'll, I'll get it this time. <laughs> and that dialogue went on for, you know, I think Adam knew it was poor shit. He was like, we're never going back to that. <laughs> just let him keep talking about <laughs> getting back in the ring and, right, right. and eventually I ran out of fight. I realized that's not going to be in the movie, is it? I think we had done. A, I think what had happened was we had done a scene um, before it, 
where she's walking away from this great conversation she has with Joseph Cross, and she was meant to go to this other scene before she goes to find Gary, and we had this thing slotted in, and once we shot the scene of her walking away and you see this emotion that's happening, it kind of like reveals itself like a hammer in your head, like, dummy, you don't see, you see what she's done here. Why are you going to go somewhere else? And, you know, that, that helps. And then the dialogue stops about reshooting and all that. That's great. <laughs> um, my last question for all of you. It's, it's actually a, sort of a quote from your, your movie, Denis, about fear, um, being the sort of enemy of the mind here, um, or obliterating it. Um, what do you all do when uh, fear suddenly comes on? Um, which may not be because you all are so experienced and so good, but there still may be a moment of fear. How do you handle it? You fake it. You, <laughs> you pretend that you're not scared. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a joke to make the point, but at the, at the same time, like, that's, that's also um, where the joy is. Yeah, if you're a junkie for that kind of like fear um, or getting out to a place where you're uncomfortable, that's the thrill. Um, to me, it is. It's exciting when things get nervous. Um, it's probably a sign that something's going right, I would think. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, I suppose a philosophy in life is that you're supposed to, 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 to that freedom is no fear, you know. But on a film set, a little bit of that helps fuel you, you know. Got it. Thank you. Denis? Uh, me, uh, I'm uh, right now. Uh, I'm, I'm in prep for the part two, and I'm, I'm terrorized. That's what I have anxiety, bad sleep. I'm, 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 uh, I'm in a fear mode. So it's like, a, and, and uh, I'm wondering why I want to be a film director. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's moment, then the fear I know will happen again. And, and I know, I think it's a, I, I wonder if it's coming from you or from someone else saying, someone that I love that that the amount of will it takes to open the, cu- the door of the car in the morning <laughs> to yeah. get on set, yeah. there's a moment where the biggest decision of the day <laughs> is to get out of the car. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 there's a lot of fear there. Once I'm, I'm on set, I try through the years to develop uh, the ability to, uh, if I'm experiencing something hard or if I, I don't know the answer, to try to be comfortable with that zone to be comfortable with not knowing the answer and, and, and calm down to, yeah. That tremendously uh, changed my way of, of uh, dealing with uh, fear and anxiety on set, to be comfortable with not knowing. So someone comes to me saying, what do we do? Uh, uh, how do we fix it? And I, if I don't, I said, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and then just ad- admitting this and giving, says, give me silence, I need a minute, I need to think, and just really letting the pressure off and walking alone and thinking all the time the, the, the solution comes to mind. But I have to admit that I don't know, and I'm, I'm sitting in my pants, and then I feel good. <laughs> Jane, I, and to some degree you've discussed this because yeah. of the work you were doing, but what do you do when fear comes up? Well, say if it comes up, I'll just talk about something different than I told you about before. So, <laughs> um, if it comes up, as it often does in rehearsal, because everyone is at a stage where it's not really happening, um, and you know you're trying to hold the space, you know, like 
it's what I think the director's job is like, you know, is, is the person with faith and with trust and knowing that um, for us to get from wherever we are to wherever we're going, it has to be awkward. It, this awkwardness is, you know, fine. You have to have faith that these people, everybody is tuned knowing that, you know, in three weeks' time we're going on. We've got to get our accents together. We've got to have walks, this, that, everything. But right now it ain't there, you know, and um, you just really want to try and create the space for them to find something authentic and genuine. And then just the smallest thing, I remember when I was doing the Bright Star Keats thing, everybody when they're doing period films, they want to act like, you know, I don't know, a cliche of Mm. what their oldie-worldie behaviour is, you know, hold a teacup. it just suddenly everyone piles into these cliches and and they were doing scenes or doing things in the room and um, everybody was acting so hard. It was, it was hard to look at. It was really uncomfortable. And um, then they sort of turned on me as well, like, you know, well, why didn't you do something, you know, fix us, you know. <laughs> um, and I was just saying, well, really I was just waiting for something that uh, I, be- I could believe in. And I think at one point, finally, Ben Wishaw went off and pretended or was like writing something on a piece of paper. And my eye just went straight to him and he wasn't really doing much, just nothing. But, oh, this is happening. You know, that was the feeling. And from there I went, oh, I, Ben, I'm really paying attention to you now. Um, and I think it's just like, oh, he can relax, you know, oh, he doesn't have to do anything special. He can just be sort of thing. And slowly that... You know, I think the worst of it was when they kind of turned on me, like, you know, you're the director, you should help us out of this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I wish I could. <laughs> well, somehow you can. <laughs> but, but it is, a, you know, discomfort is part of the game, I think. Um, that awkwardness and discomfort is part of the game and... Actually, Keats has a great thing about negative capability, which is the capacity to be in a mystery um, without reaching after fact or reason and, like, just accepting that, um, you know, the, the mystery is a real creative strength. And you don't know. You don't know. And you don't know where you're going to get out of it or how you're going to get out of it. But, it, you know, like you were saying, Daniel, you know, just to say, I don't know, you know, is kind of powerful. Oh. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Stephen, fear. Well, well yeah. I, I mean, I, I know, I know fear. I was born with fear, and <laughs> I had seven kids through fear, and now six grandchildren through fear. Fear is a good thing. Confidence is the killer, and I, and I say that because confidence throws an anchor and limits the possibilities of seeing a scene that you know ad nauseum. It limits the possibility for anything beyond what you feel confident in. And so if I become insecure with a scene, it's the only way I can basically decide how to change the scene, how to explore what I already thought I had explored. I thought I'd mind that out. There's nothing left. But if I suddenly wake up and I come onto a set and a scene I'm so confident in, I suddenly feel like I'm you know, I'm on stage naked, as the, that, that naked on stage dream, or not knowing your, your lines are uh, a dream. And that's when panic, I think, creates 
a whole different level of exploration. And it happens in milliseconds. It doesn't mean I walk off and I pace and I think, but when I feel really uncomfortable, I get more ideas through discomfort than I do when I come onto a, onto a set and I say, okay, I'm going to shoot the scene exactly as written. I like the way I think the scene's going to sound and let's just go ahead and go to work. So I actually look for things that scare me. I, 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 I look for those things. And sometimes something doesn't scare me and we, we just shoot what's on the, on the page. And, and, but when something really makes me feel like, wow, I'm, I'm, missing, I, I'm missing the point of the scene. I suddenly don't understand what the scene is and where its place is in the, in the structure of the movie. Where does it go? Does it eat, am I going to cut it out in four months in the cutting room? Is, am I going to do three days' work and those three days I know right now are not going to be in the movie? Why am I wasting everybody's time? That's when I, get, I think the inspiration happens. Oh, wow. That's when it happens. Well, thank you, Steve. Yeah. Kenneth? A friend of mine uh, often says to me, the, the greatest possibility for advancement occurs at the greatest moment of negativity. At my scaredest on a film, um, I was in the... Um, we, we spoke about this before, the... the the, the vortex of how am I going to get a night's sleep? How Just give me sleep. Please, just give me any form of sleep. Just let me escape into sleep or give me something that will give me the energy tomorrow to not be so fucking paranoid. Um, so I said, here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm so scared of what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm sleeping here. So put the trailer next to the next to the, the soundstage. Which they just, well, you can't sleep here. The security insurance. I said, I'm, I'm not going home. I'm so terrified that I need to be able to potentially get up in the night and walk onto the stage for this massive indoor action sequence bit where I know for sure, but I'm not saying it out loud to you, that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I know that there are hundreds of people, there are dump tanks, there are hydraulics. It has to be linked to a whole view of CGI. I'm so scared of it that I, I'm either going to sleep here or I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive and I'm never, never going to come back <laughs> anyway. So, so please put the trailer next to the entrance to the stage, okay? And uh, my wife said, oh, well, you're just, leave me alone. I just got to, I, I won't sleep anyway, but whatever. Three o'clock in the morning. Uh, hello, sir. Said, what, 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 yeah, what's going on? The star... Uh, who was due to be the central part of the massive action sequence. He said, we just had a message, and person X uh, won't be in tomorrow. They've had a problem getting back from Europe. <laughs> so now not only, so now it's, a, it's the nightmare. Is, I, th I was thinking, am I actually awake? Um, or is it, no, I, it is 3 o'clock in the morning. This is the security guy. It's just one bloke. There's only one bloke in the studio and me. <laughs> And he's just come to tell me, you know the guy who's central to everything you're doing tomorrow? He won't be here. <laughs> so now I'm in, like, I'm in slow motion, said, open the stage door. Just open, can't do it. Open the fucking stage door. <laughs> so now it's three o'clock in the morning, I've officially gone into mad professor. Because <laughs> now I've got to work out how the f*** can we do this without the star? <laughs> and it was the greatest thing that could possibly have happened. Because we then cut the thing up, because I didn't have to worry about waiting for this thing it was dangerous there were stunts there was going to be whatever we had like three picture doubles we put them in it became the easiest thing in the world and from sort of three till six i mean by the end of that day i was mental i needed to be i needed to be sectioned at the end of that day but when they arrived for the first time on that shoot i didn't say i don't know i said 
I know exactly what we're doing. I know what we're doing. Just give me the doubles, give me the hydraulics, and do it. I'm sleeping at the studio every night. <laughs> well, I'm not recommending you all. I have one more question. I can't resist. Superstitions. Do anything you can even. Any of you have any superstitions in terms of I have to wear the same pair of shoes when I'm on set? Any of you? Superstitions? Don't walk under ladders. That's what I don't do. Got it. Anybody else? I sometimes have a piece of clothing that I wore, you know, like on a day when things went well, that I want to wear it again and again. <laughs> like, oh, this is going to be a tricky scene. Where's that jumper? <laughs> I, it's not a superstition, but I, I wear hokas when I direct. <laughs> you know, hokas make me a better director. Yeah. <laughs> but true, don't tell that to hoka because I don't want to be on television <laughs> selling the product. <laughs> but no, no superstitions. Got it, got it. Benny, Paul, anything you do? I think I might wear those two. There's hookers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's slightly wardrobe-based. Now that you guys are mentioning it, I get a little, get a, get, yeah, some wardrobe superstitions, a shirt that worked well. I want to wear it again the next day. <clears throat> By the end of a shoot, my, my whole trunk is filled with all different types of clothes because sometimes you wake up and it's cold and you think, like, could it get hot on the set? I'll bring something else just in case. And, and my whole... Um, bedroom is in my, the trunk of my car. <laughs> it's really crazy. But. Well, the fact is that uh, you, you all bring some incredible baggage to the work that you do, and then when you open up those bags, you show us brilliance. And uh, we thank you for your time and for your genius in the film world. And here you are. I remember I have a superstition. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to this exclusive conversation. You can watch the full video of the Theatrical Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org events and also on our YouTube channel. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 